Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Payments Podium with the Payments Professor. Today, we've got a really great topic. You're going to be really high on wanting to listen to this one because we're going to talk about cannabis and banking. Now, as you know, on the Payments Podium, the idea is we want to bring in an expert in that particular area or field. Now, I got to say, I'm really excited about today's show. I know you guys are out there saying, he says that about every show. Well, this one I'm particularly excited about because I got to meet this speaker in person. And I don't know about you guys, but you know how you go to some of those sessions and you're in those sessions and it's like, oh my gosh, this is killing me. In fact, you know, I've gone to a few cannabis sessions myself and I left with that feeling of, huh, dude, what, what, what was that? Well, this particular session, I did not leave like that. I left knowing I had learned something, that there was some great information that had got dropped. And so I hope that you guys get as much out of this that I know that I'm going to get. I'm going to introduce our guest taking the podium today. The payments podium is going to be occupied by Angela Lucas. Now, Angela works with Sterling Compliance. She is actually a former bank regulator. She's definitely a knowledgeable consultant. She's got knowledge of what it's like to be in the banking area when it comes to regulatory regulatory compliance, risk management, investment advisory services. She's definitely established herself as a leading resource, a resource the payments professor uses without a doubt, with financial institutions consulting the industry and spanning consumer protection and even anti-money laundering statutes, fraud, and of course, today's topic, marijuana banking issues. Angela, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, in the payments podium, the way that we address this is what we do is we like to look at the past, the present, and the possibilities, the the professor's three Ps. So when it comes to cannabis and banking, I know a lot of people are wondering, is there really even a past in this? And where are we now? And of course, the golden question that we'll have at the end is, what's this all going to mean in the future? But let's look at there and look at the past. And I would ask you, well, could you tell us what the past of cannabis banking really is and what, what has happened, what's gone on that's got us to where we are today? Sure. Um, so I think the the place to start is, you know, a lot of people don't really even understand why cannabis or marijuana was a schedule one drug to begin with. Why, why it's demonized and considered a bad thing. Um, because In order to understand where banking has come from, we have to understand why it was even scheduled to begin with. Um, So without getting into a huge history dating back thousands and thousands of years, um, we saw the demonization of cannabis primarily in the 1930s. And there was a lot of racial prejudice going on there, a lot of misinformation about the plant and its uses. You know, basically, it was the fake news of the time where, um, you know, there was a lot of fear from Mexican immigrants coming into our country after the Mexican Revolution. And, you know, cannabis was something that everybody in the U.S. had within their medicine cabinet. Everybody was using it for its medicinal qualities, but they had not heard of the term marijuana. And they used the the term marijuana with an H, not a J, um, back then. 
um, but they really didn't understand uh, the difference between the two. And the news started to play upon the uh, bad qualities of marijuana versus the medicinal qualities of cannabis. And it's all the same plant. Um, there's just different parts of the plant that create different effects on the human body. And so really what happened was, um, you know, there was a, a magnate basically that uh, lost a lot of land uh, in the Mexican Revolution, and um, he was playing part of this along with what was the precursor to the DEA, and they kind of worked together to um, say that marijuana was a bad bad substance, and it was creating a lot of violence and bad behaviors, and so, you know, they kind of perpetuated this this myth, I guess you could say. Um, so over the years, um, they discovered THC, which is the compound that, that creates a high. Um, and different parts of the cannabis plant have different levels of THC. And so some of the, the parts that have very low THC will not create a high. Well, some of those like in the flower part of the plant have high levels of THC that create the high. And so in 1970, cannabis became classified as a Schedule One drug. It was actually only supposed to be uh, a placeholder on Schedule One until further tests were conducted and um, they, they really got a sense for whether it did have medicinal qualities. And so the administration at that time decided to ignore the tests that had been going on and just left it as a Schedule I drug. So when you're looking at Schedule I drugs, those are the ones that have a high potential for abuse. There's no accepted medical treatment in the U.S. Um, there's lack of an accepted safety standard under medical supervision. So other things that are on Schedule One are heroin, LSD, ecstasy, and things like that. But then when you start to go down the schedules and you look at Schedule Two, that's where you find all of our opioids. And I mean, you'd have to be under a rock if you didn't know about the opioid crisis in our country. Um, so these opioids are being prescribed willy-nilly and all the time, every day, tons of pills that are out there. Uh, and they're a Schedule II drug. But, you know, we see that there's been movement over the last couple, um, really 10 to 15, even maybe 20 years, going into the medicinal qualities of marijuana and the cannabis plant. And so, you know, we, we tend to kind of look at the two terms differently. Um, but they're actually all the same thing. So we'll refer to it as cannabis because I think that's a little bit easier because you break that into the, its different um, components. Um, but really, we started looking into as a country and, and states and specifically into the medicinal qualities of the cannabis plant. And so we saw states begin to legalize marijuana, cannabis, um, in different capacities in different states. So, you know, first we saw the medicinal qualities approved um, and legalized at the state level. And then we saw some states start to uh, approve for recreational or what we call adult use um, at this point. And so we see a lot of that progression and evolution in uh, how the states are treating it. And so um, one of the biggest problems or, or questions, I guess, that we get a lot of the time is, well, how do they do this at the state level when it's still federally illegal? Well, our, that's the way that our country is set up. Um, the states do have their own rights. And so they started to legalize. And in 2014, we saw 
two primary documents that started to guide this industry. One was well, the coal memo. Can I stop you there? I, I got a couple of questions on this because, you okay. know, going through this history, it, it's really neat. Um, you know, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but you could correct me. Wasn't it in the 30s around that time that we had prohibition with alcohol taking place and then the repeal of prohibition with alcohol? And you mentioned that in that time, too, that it wasn't uncommon for people to have something that had, let's say, at least THC or something related to marijuana in their medicine cabinet. So they knew that there were uses then, but it got taken away. Mm -hmm. And here we go almost 90 years later. And I see some, uh, what do you, what, what's the right word to say, that there's some things that seem to connect the dots with what happened with alcohol when prohibition was being repealed. It was a case, at least as I understand it, that the states started doing it first, that there were individual states that started saying, no, we're going to go ahead and make alcohol legal again. Now, I don't want to compare alcohol to marijuana in the medical sense, because I, I don't know that that's really truly there. But I'm just saying that, you know, there is some comparisons, at least that it seems like me exist, because we had that happen then. We had years of political issues, it really seemed, that caused to where we couldn't use this. But we get to, again, almost 90 years later, and what happened where the states now got involved and the states started, would you say, exercising their power or their rights to be able to say, hey, we want to review this, we want to look at this and see what is really possible now. That's 100% accurate. Um, so yes, we saw that. And it's interesting that you made, that you talked about that connection because I was talking to um, a couple people that are, you know, experts in this field that actually touch the plan every day and, and you know, imagine reading up on, on all of this. And, you know, it's funny because I have, you know, a stack of cannabis and marijuana books on my nightstand and my husband's like please don't let the babysitter see all those because uh, you don't know how it's how it's viewed but um, you know one of the things that was a really interesting comparison is when you look at cannabis versus alcohol if we were in a world where there was neither so you know we have no alcohol we have no cannabis and government's looking at based on Schedule 1 classifications, which one, if we're going to introduce it to society, will be on Schedule 1, alcohol would be on Schedule 1 far faster than cannabis would be because it has no medicinal use, um, you know, and there's a lot of other reasons behind that, but that's sort of where we've come from. And so, yes, the state started to exercise their individual rights and they started to uh, legalized at, at various levels. And so it's one thing to legalize the use of the cultivation, the processing, and the use of cannabis um, in different states, but it's quite another when it comes to the banking side of things. And so the states themselves, because a lot of the financial institutions, many of them in our country, um, the vast majority are federally regulated and federally insured, um, it created an issue with the banking industry because these businesses needed to get bank accounts. Um, and if they couldn't get bank accounts, they're dealing in tons and tons and tons of cash. And so that's what created a huge issue um, at the state level and at the federal level. And so uh, that is a very good segue into uh, the two documents that came out in 2014. So one was the Cole memo. Um, mm -hmm. This memo was, to, I'm sorry, were you going to say something? Oh, no, 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 you're, you're okay. good. I, I think that's great is what, what has got us to today because, you know, another comparison I look at that you just mentioned was 
the need for banking of the industry, even if you go back to prohibition, there was so much crime taking place and there was so much movement of cash that was associated with it because of the illegal activity. And a lot of that was able to be removed or at least uh, limited when it became possible for it to be legal and to be banked. And I also, you know, agree with you, you know, how do banks look at this? How do we make it to where it's safer? Because anybody who's listening to this who doesn't know the banking industry should understand that in any situation where there's a large amount of cash, it's a potentially dangerous situation because people may want to steal it, pilfer it in some way. So getting to where this could happen at a legal pace and going into the present, um, could you tell us more on the Cole Memo and what it did and what happened from there? Right. So the Cole Memo itself listed what they call the priorities. And the priorities within that memo are basically making sure that a cannabis-related business is not doing something that is um, – wrongful to society. So we don't want to sell it to minors. We don't want to have it grown on federal lands. We don't want it to be used for um, a cover for other crimes. Um, we don't want it to proliferate the use of firearms, things like that. And so there's a series of priorities within that memo that basically says we do not want our cannabis related businesses to be doing any of these things. Hand in hand on the very same day, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, came out with their BSA expectations regarding marijuana-related businesses. So they came out on the same day and said, okay, if you are a financial institution that is federally regulated, federally insured, here are our expectations for you to identify, monitor, and manage the risk associated with marijuana-related businesses. And a huge part of that is doing the due diligence that they need to do to make sure that the business is legit, licensed, uh, registered at the at the state level, that is complying with all of the state requirements, um, and that they know all of the related parties and they can track the transactions and they, they can monitor the business accordingly. So back in 2014, we got both of these documents and that's really what started um, sort of the platform of banks and credit unions for that matter. To, to offer banking services to financial or to these cannabis related businesses. And so, you know, you would think that that would kind of open the doors for this, but even, um, you know, five years later, we're sitting here and they just, the numbers just came out with from FinCEN, I believe yesterday. Um, and while we've seen an uptick in the uh, number of financial institutions, banks and credit unions offering banking services to uh, cannabis related businesses, there's only um, a little over 600 in our country that are doing that. I think it's 600 banks and a couple hundred credit unions um, that are doing that versus the thousands that are out there. So there still is, you know, in present day, there still is a lot of ambivalence about getting into this industry and, and banking this space. Now, were there any factors though around 2012, 13 that led to that memo in 2014? Uh, was it, you know, maybe political? Was it those things happen in society? Was it scientific? Maybe the understanding of the additional uses for the marijuana plant and what it was that actually led to where, or actually in banking too, anything that happened that led to the creation of these memos, the creation of the priorities and expectations. Because you said that FinCEN came out what, what, almost the same day as the Cole memo with their expectations. 
that seems to me that the two parties involved had some communication back and forth, which we know in politics doesn't always happen, but they had to have had some planning to be able to time it, to be able to work that way. So were there any factors at that time that led to that to happen? Well, you know, I don't know that there's any one factor, but definitely at that time, the administration that we had um, in those years was really looking at the medical benefits of it and looking at what was happening at the state levels and knew that something was going to have to have to happen um, federally in order to kind of go through and, and make this an acceptable thing for for banks to offer um, to these to these cannabis-related businesses. Um, so I think there was a lot of political pressure uh, to make this happen. Um, but what's interesting, so it actually, both documents released on Valentine's Day uh, in 2014. Uh, so a little fun fact there. Um, and interestingly enough, a lot of the dispensaries uh, report that their highest sales are on Valentine's Day. So that's kind of interesting. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> that is an interesting little fact. <laughs> so fun fact for the day. Um, but yeah, so what was interesting, though, when you mentioned about the communication, um, Earlier, last year in, in first quarter, Department of Justice came out and rescinded that Cole memo without telling FinCEN. And so there was no communication there. And all of a sudden, FinCEN's getting all these calls from the financial institutions that have been banking these cannabis-related businesses. And they're like, what, you know, what do we do at this point? And so... Um, you know, it was one of those things where there was there was zero communication and caused a hiccup, and that caused a lot of um, confusion uh, last year about what was going to happen. And, and very short after that memo was rescinded, I believe it was only I think it was in March of 2018. There were um, I believe 19 attorneys general uh, throughout the U.S. that had submitted a letter to Congress, basically saying we need to fix this, and so. You know, it was one of those things where we've been seeing consistent action by both parties um, over the last couple of years trying to move banking legislation forward so that we can, our financial institutions can effectively, efficiently, and, and safely um, bank these businesses. So if we look at where we are today, um, medical marijuana is legal in 33 states. Um, recreational or adult use is now legal in 11 states. Illinois just joined the ranks um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's also legal in uh, District of Columbia. And so we're seeing on both sides, there's an overwhelming majority in favor of legalization. Now, there's two sides to the legalization. One is saying remove it from the Schedule One controlled substances list. The other side is saying let's tackle the financial services side and allow our federally regulated institutions to be able to provide banking services to these businesses. The overwhelming majority of uh, legislators and um, just generally speaking, whenever we're talking about who's in favor of what, the safe harbor for financial institutions to bank these businesses is much higher than what it is on taking it away from Schedule 1. So they may have to go hand in hand. They may come piecemeal. Um, but when we're looking at who's supporting what. Well, what's really the difference between removing it from Schedule 1 and just making legislation that allows for banking? So the problem. Don't, don't we need both? Well, ideally, <laughs> ideally that would, well, so here's the deal. If we remove it from schedule one, 
it's just like banking any other crop or you know processor or retailer at that point mm -hmm. so at that point there's no need for federal legislation essentially for the banking services because it's just like banking any um, any other product but this is also a higher risk industry where there's a lot of cash out there theoretically the more banks that take the cash into their financial institution and bring it into our regulatory system where we can monitor and watch it um, and they can get access to you know non-cash transactions so debit cards credit cards you know all the electronic payments it brings all that cash off the street Theoretically, that sounds like that it wouldn't remove any of the coal memo type priorities or the FinCEN expectations. You'd still it'd be like alcohol, like tobacco, like firearms. You still can't sell the miners. You're still not going to sell on schoolyard. You're still not going to, you know, use federal property to your advantage in any way. I mean, wouldn't that still be how it would be looked at even if removed from Schedule 1? I think it would be. Um, I also think that um, as far as the expectations go, it would be um, sort of like watching our money service businesses now. So any cash intensive business um, where you see funds flowing in and out and the velocity of those funds going in and out um, and kind of looking at the source and use of those funds, I think you're always going to be able to you're going to want to look at that because no matter whether it becomes legal or not, there's always going to be a black market for it. Um, so if you look at Canada, for example, they legalized it across the board. There's still a very large black market in Canada wow. for it. So there's still going to be, um, you know, the bad actors that are trying to uh, launder the money through the financial institution. So there's still going to be um, an expectation of due diligence and monitoring, even if it was taken off the Schedule 1 substances list. And that's no different than the Louis Vuitton bags they sell on the streets of some major <laughs> city. That's right. Or the moonshine that, you know, is growing in the, uh, I live in the South, you know, and that's not that uncommon. Or even the, you know, stolen cigarettes. So, I mean, it still would exist like it does in other industries, let's say. Exactly. You know, who knows? They may be putting on a, a TV show about cannabis, just like they do with the moonshiners. I don't know. <laughs> Coming soon to a uh, channel near you. I know, I know. So, um, you know, we do have two primary well, there's lots of legislation out there that's being proposed, but two of the primary acts that are out there are the States Act, um, which would give anybody who's following the state marijuana laws a reprieve from federal consequences. So um, they would be able to conduct non-cash transactions, take tax deductions, get bank accounts, and it would allow financial institutions to provide them banking services. Um, and that's, so that's a federal act, correct? Federal act, yes. Okay. Um, the other federal act that's being proposed is the Safe Banking Act, and this would allow well-regulated um, financial institutions to uh, offer banking services to marijuana-related businesses or cannabis-related businesses that are also well-regulated within the industry um, to basically bring all that cash in. So they're, basic, they're saying, you know, you can bank under the Safe Banking Act, your growers, your processors, your dispensaries, um, and the ancillary businesses that come along with them um, safely as long as you do your due diligence. So those are two acts that we're looking at federally that have been sort of moving forward so we're hoping um, over time, 
hopefully uh, by year end, we may see some, some kind of movement on either or both of those. In my personal opinion, I think we need to, um, I think they need to have a lot more incorporated into those acts before they can actually go forward. Um, I, I think there needs to be a lot of feedback from the banking industry in terms of those who are off are banking these businesses now and those who want to, um, because they're going to be on the front lines. They're going to be the ones who are having to do the due diligence. Um, the one thing that's sort of um, difficult with the FinCEN memo is that, or the FinCEN guidance, is that it's very ambiguous. So, you know, it'll say, for example, you have to make sure that your customer is conducting business sales, for example, commensurate with that type of business. So you have to know, is your dispensary, are there sales in line with this other dispensary of that size? Well, how do you get that data? You know, you have to understand all of their products and services. And, you know, our bankers really are not trained to, um, you know, go in and determine whether, you know, flowers, concentrates, pre-rolls, and all of these things, you know, what they make up as far as inventory is concerned. So there's a lot, there's a big education gap there. I think there's an education gap <laughs> in the sentence you just said, and me, I mean, pre-rolls, flowers, there's a whole jargon in the pre <laughs> just like we have in banking, and just like we have in compliance that exists too, that would have to be learned, right? Exactly, yes. So there's a whole other, you know, list of things that, that we need to see. The other part of it, too, and just to kind of, this is just sort of fun facts, um, you know, a lot of these financial institutions have a preconceived notion of what cannabis is, how it's, you know, its reputation in society and things like that. A lot of them have never been to a cultivating site um, or mm -hmm. a processing site um, or a dispensary for that matter. And when you go into some of these cultivators, um, the ones that we visited, they're cleaner than any hospital you've ever been in. They're talking, really? yes, because bacteria is such a huge issue um, with the plants. They're, you know, based on movies, you think it's rather easy to grow marijuana, but they're very finicky little plants. And so, um, you know, every room uh, has its own HVAC system. They all have very uh, particular care that they have along the way from the time that it's taken from a snipping from the mother plant to the time that it is full grown to when it's processed. And so when you go into these facilities, I mean, they're very clean. Um, they're talking about the people that run them uh, are PhDs. Uh, their botanists. Um, it's amazing the amount of knowledge that, that you get under one roof and the amount of money that it takes to fund something like this. And right now it's all being funded by cash because they can't, they don't have access, readily available access to the banking industry. And, but you know, these just, are professionals. The, I mean, you said a PhD, you said these are cleaner than most medical facilities. You know, I wonder, you know, what level of scrutiny they could pass even on that cleanliness level, but they're professionals. They're not, you know, the classic, you know, you think the long haired hippie, you know, working out of the back of a, a van type deal. I mean, it's an actual establishment that you go to that is of professional quality. I'm sure they've got security, great security, even at their locations. That I think a lot of it is, you know, what is that perception versus reality? Is, am I correct in that? 
That's absolutely correct. Now at the cultivating and the processing sites, that's typical. Now when you get to the retail side of things, you can kind of get into the hippie side. You know, you run into the very, the very high-end, uh, well-run, well-regulated dispensaries. Um, you know, on the medical side, they have to follow very particular roles. And on the recreational side, they do as well. Um, you're more likely to get sort of the stereotypical um, person that you conjure um, sort of at the retail level. But, you know, at the same time, they're doing a state legal, they're conducting a state legal activity. So it's not like they're in the back of their van or in their basement with their grow lights, you know. Um, right. it's, it's a very interesting uh, it's a very interesting world to be in. And what we've seen is the financial institutions that are even looking at banking uh, these businesses, they'll go out and they'll do site visits and they'll bring their potential customers in and educate their boards of directors and they'll educate their lenders and they'll educate uh, their frontline staff to really understand the business and know the right questions to ask when they do their due diligence. And, it, you know, just kind of going back to the banking services, we're not even talking about lending yet. We are talking about pure checking accounts. Just give me a debit card and a checking account. That's all they want. We haven't even touched lending yet because lending is one of those things for, for multiple reasons why um, nobody sort of delved into the lending side of it on the credit risk side. So we, all they want is a checking account. Um, and because going back to the amount of infrastructure that these uh, state legal entities need, I mean, their applications alone are several hundred thousand dollars to even apply to get a license. That's not wow. even putting together their facilities, their security, um, and all of those things. And so when you're looking at the amount of cash that they have out there, it's scary to know that they have so much cash. I mean, we're talking millions of dollars in um, warehouses, just stored in warehouses. Um, rats are eating through cash because it's oh, stored in warehouses. Yeah. Rats are eating through cash? Rats are eating through cash because they have it stored in facilities uh, where, you know, it's basically stacked up and the rats are eating through, eating through the cash. Um, you know, we see issues where, like out in Las Vegas, um, a colleague of mine is very well dialed into all of the dispensaries there. Um, he lives there and he, he runs a similar company um, on the software side that deals with cannabis businesses and, and the banking side of things. And he knows um, a lot of the dispensary owners and those who work there. And he ran across one of the gentlemen that works for a dispensary and he was all, you know, his face was all bruised and beat up. And he said, what happened? And he said, well, you know, the armored cars that take our cash um, would not, they don't pull up to the dispensary for obvious reasons. Um, so they have to meet them. So the dispensary employees have to go meet the armored car. So there's You're several, kidding. No. There's several hundred thousand dollars going from point A to point B to get it in that armored car. And he said, I wasn't careful. I was carrying a duffel bag full of a hundred thousand dollars in cash and I got jumped. Oh my gosh. And so, you know, the people that go to work for these places are putting their lives in danger um, because, you know, there's so much cash out there. So again, bringing it in and being able to allow just normal, basic banking services where we have all those non-cash transactions can make, make things so much safer. 
Well, and you know, Angela, I, I got to tell you, the time's actually getting away from me. I just realized we are hitting about 25, almost 30 minutes already. And that's where we try to keep the podcast too, so that it equals up to about a drive. I, I would, you know, ask, do you, do you think we could continue this discussion and maybe break this into two parts so that the listeners can go ahead and go into their office and, you know, expect to be able to hear the next part of this uh, in the next episode? Because I know personally, I, I want to know more about the educating of the staff. I want to know more of when it does come to the banking side and being in compliance. Like, I have to admit, I was recently in Spain, and while I was there, and I'm being a tourist, I'm going around, I'm seeing all the shops, I just happened to notice not one, but several of these, I, they call them, I think, New Amsterdam shops. And it was, once I noticed it, and I mean, they, they blended in at first, but because they're professional quality shops. But once I noticed it, I was like, oh, I know what they're doing. <laughs> yep. And I will admit, I had to go in and see what's going on. And I watched a couple of purchases. I checked out what was the merchandise. So, you know, I observed what was the location like, and it was professional and it was high quality. But that's on the, I guess, retail side. Mm -hmm. What would it take, though, I think is the next step that I'd like to see. And if you don't mind, I'd love to invite you back. And let's have a, a more focused on where we are now, what needs to be done, and where this can lead to. Because we've definitely got the past. You definitely have established what's happening in the industry but if, if you're open to it, could I bring you back in for another episode to be able to answer more of those questions on what the banks need to do, what equals compliance, what equals due diligence? Yes, I would love to. Thank you so much. And all of you out there, uh, again, we're going to have to break this into two parts. We do appreciate you listening. You can, of course, go to thepaymentsprofessor.com if you want to find out more. You can go on LinkedIn to be able to find out more information. And we will have a part two coming to you soon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.